You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, it's episode 197 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, and we we're brought to you today by our beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons. You can join at patreon.com slash pimpcron, and also gamemat.eu for all of your pre-painted terrain, your STL files, and your game mat needs. Boom. Event 10 at checkout for 10% off your order at gamemat.eu. Wow! Well, today we only have two segments. We have the one that I want that not with the new Joy Toy Space Marine Ultramarine Primaris Librarian action figure that they have for sale. And then our real talk is exploring the idea is Warhammer really pay to win? Hmm. We've got no Tesseract mailbox this week because nobody wrote in. Now you should feel ashamed. <laughs> it's all right. So... Um, what have I been up to? Well, I played a very fun game of Age of Sigmar this week with my friend Just James and my other friends TJ and David at the club. I played my Ossiarch Bone Reapers, which are Skeletor-themed, and James played his uh, Zinch Demons, and David brought two Mega Gargants, and TJ brought his Vampire Counts, and uh, whatever they're called now, I can't even think what they're called. Vampire Counts, you know what they are. You know what I'm saying. Shut up. And we had a really good game. We devised this very quick little thing where the objectives would move each turn. We rolled off and then we got to control the objective. It was really fun. And I was really amazed at how well my Ossiarch Bone Reapers did. They got hammered and hammered by TJ and David's stuff and they held up pretty darn well. We ended up losing 13 to 12 to them. Uh, We did a lot of casualties and death to them, but we just couldn't hang on. What's funny is is that we would have actually tied the game if it weren't for two rolls that TJ made. And uh, he has his deathless saves on his vampire, and I dealt him two mortal wounds, and he only had two hit points left. And he rolled double sixes to save them. Now, if we would have killed that vampire, we would have actually had 13 points, and they would have had 13 points, because he was contesting our objective. He didn't control it, but he was contesting it. So that is kind of like a... Darn it. <laughs> it was actually a really good game, though. It's been three weeks since I'd played Warhammer, and I've been really busy with Brutality and all that, enjoying that. And um, this was just a super fun game. I really did enjoy it. I felt like it really could have went either way. The Mega Gargants didn't... I mean, David wasn't rolling very well, so he didn't do a whole lot with the Mega Gargants, and we were able to kill both of them. But um, a lot of kind of shenanigans about trying to figure out, you know, can I control this objective and still take another one from him or whatever. And overall, it was just a fun, it was a really good game. So, and that's only the second game ever that I've played my Ossiarch Bone Reapers. So that kind of encouraged me like, hmm, maybe I should paint some more Bone Reapers because this was pretty fun. And I learned that Arcan the Black, who is my Skeletor, Arcan the Black is very good at shutting down other people's spells because he can dispel three spells a turn and he gets plus two to dispel them, which is nuts. He can also cast three spells a turn and he gets plus two to cast them, which is nuts. So he's a very good wizard. Um, he's just not that great in close combat. You know, he's on one of those giant skull dragon things and... um. It's just kind of unimpressive how he is in in melee. Now, I didn't roll super great for him in melee, but overall, he's just really good at manipulating the other board. Um, 
also what's neat is that Osiric Bone Reapers, they don't use command points and they don't use stratagems. They have their own stratagems that uses their own type of command points. So it's kind of, at first I was like, oh man, I'm at a disadvantage because I don't get to do the all out attack, all out defense, whatever. But then I was like, wait a second, but he can't mess with my stuff. So it actually, I kind of like it. Um, their abilities are still pretty decent, I think. Um, I don't know how competitive, quote unquote, they are, but they're actually quite fun to play. And I like the models a lot. And it ended up working out for me because there's no amount of shenanigans. More and more of the characters in Age of Sigmar are getting shenanigan abilities like, oh, you know, whenever you use a command point, then I can get I can take it from you or I can cancel it or I can whatever. And it's nice because I'm not using command points. So do whatever you want, bitch. Anyway, um, what else? I finished the editing on the Brutality Anthology book. So that is uh, I, I ordered my final edit copy. And uh, we're going to look it over again. I sent it to my friend Eric, and I, I'm going to send it to my friend Matt for them to look over again. And I'm going to read it cover to cover again. And um, just make sure it's up to speed and it's, it's good. I've also been working pretty heavily on Brutal Space. And I have been just fleshing stuff out there. But also, I played a fun game of Brutal Space against myself, soloed it. And it was the Unity Ascendant. Think of uh, think of spiritualists in space or Native Americans in space, and uh, versus the Sentinels of Order, which is v vaguely you could kind of say like the Imperium. It's it's very different, but it's somewhat. It's like fanatical soldiers and all of that, and they were fighting each other. And unfortunately, the uh, Unity, the space Native Americans. Unity got a head start in the beginning of the game, and they kind of kept that head start the whole game. The other team, the Sentinels, were able to catch up at the end, but they still just couldn't pull it out. They ended up losing. The Sentinels of Order lost 7-10 to 10 against Unity Ascendant, so I'm still having a lot of fun playtesting uh, Brutal Space, and um, I, that will definitely be done by the end of the year. Just depends on how bad my summer is, whether or not uh, I get more and more time to work on it. So... That is about it, I think, and we are starting to get thunderstorms here, so let's get on with the show, or otherwise I'm going to have to try and edit out a bunch of thunderstorms. Want that, or want that not? Hey everybody, it is time for Want That or Want That Not, and today we are covering the Joy Toy Space Marines Ultramarines Primaris Librarian. You might confuse that possibly, with the Joy Toy Space Marines Ultramarines Librarian, but this is the Joy Toy Space Marines Ultramarines Primaris Librarian. So try to try to keep up. For $60, you can buy this action figure from Joy Toy, and it is basically made to order, it seems like. It seems like it's they're going to take orders, and then they're going to fulfill them over the next couple weeks or whatever, which is a little odd to me, but I guess it keeps them from making more than they need, I suppose, but the action figure for $60, I'm trying to look here, he is 12 centimeters tall, which means absolutely nothing to me, because we use the Lord's measurement system. Imperial? I mean, I know it is standard, but I think it's also called Imperial. Anyway, so centimeters is, might as well say, this is 12 Kajinga Jingas tall, and <laughs> with... 25 points of articulation, an all-inspiring, by the way, they say 
uh-all-inspiring, not an an-all-inspiring Ultramarines Primaris Librarian. So, he comes with a bunch of parts. He's a pretty cool-looking model. He comes with a four-sword, and he's got the little psychic hood. He's got hoses all over him. He's got a little book on his uh, belt and some keys, and he's got, like, multiple layers of cloaks on him because I guess he's cold. And he's got a neat little head on him that's like a, a gray goatee, like he's some, some guy's dad. And he comes with either four or six hands. I think he comes with six hands. And if you don't like your Joy Toy Space Marines Ultramarines Primaris Librarian looking like your dad, then you can put a helmet on him. If you like it, then you should have put a helmet on it. Do I like this? You know, the detail is actually quite nice. And I have no idea how tall 12 Kajinga Jangas is, but it looks like it's a pretty chunky action figure. All of their action figures look pretty cool. It's odd to me that there is McFarlane Toys making action figures right now, but there's also Joy Toy making action figures right now, which is just odd that they would license out essentially the same thing to two different people at the same time. Unless I'm just stupid and Joy Toy is part of McFarlane Toys, but I don't think that's the case. Anyway, it's got a bunch of articulation. It's an action figure. It's certainly bigger than your model, I assume. And it comes with a bunch of different hands and a head. The, like I said before, the detail actually looks pretty nice on it. I do not care for the Force Sword. The Force Sword looks kind of ridiculous. It is the old style. They painted it like, you know how people used to paint the Force Swords back in the day when the bolters were that bright red and all that. They painted the four swords like this weird yellow on top of the runes, and then the four sword was blue, and it's just kind of gaudy. I really don't care for the four sword, and if I were to ever buy this, which, spoilers, I'm not gonna. If I were to ever to buy this, I would definitely paint over the sword blade, because I just don't care for it. It's almost cartoony in comparison to the rest of the model. The rest of the model is really going for a realistic look to it. I mean, he's got the little keys. He's not cartoony at all. He's got, like, faint blush on his cheeks, and they tried to make his skin tone realistic, and all of that actually looks quite nice. And then you get this giant cartoony sword, and it's doing nothing for me. So, do I want this for $60? No, I do not. Do I want it for $50? No. $40? No. $30? Mm, no. 20 bucks? Yes, I'd buy it for 20 bucks. But then again, I am not their target demographic. This, I assume, is for the collector that likes to collect large articulated action figures, and I have never been that person. Although I did have some from Star Trek, but I had them for about six months and then sold them. So I just, I have a hard time keeping something if it doesn't have a function. Obviously, I can play with the miniatures that I buy and paint and all of that, but these action figures... I just, I find it very hard to keep them around taking up shelf space. It is certainly a cool model. I will definitely give it to that. Give them, give it to them. But for $60, that is a no-go for me by, certainly. Also, what's also interesting is right above them, they've got Joy Toys, Space Marines, Ultramarines, Intercessors, a squad of four of them for 120 So let me do some quick maths here. 120 divided by four is, I mean, less than $100 a model. And meanwhile, this library, I know what it is, shut up, it's $30 a model. $30 a model for these intercessors, and you buy a whole squad of them, which is kind of neat, I guess, if you want four of essentially the same action figure. 
but they're only $40 and the librarian is 60 so you're going to tell me that they applied their character um, character pricing scheme from their miniatures over to their action figures. I don't know why, but that kind of tickles me, and I think it's a little ridiculous. The reason why the characters are a higher price normally is because they do extra things that your other people don't do, right? They buff the units, etc., etc. They're named characters, you need them. But this is just a separate action figure who happens to be a character. I just find that kind of funny. Um, like I said, if I were a collector, I guess 60 bucks isn't bad. I don't know what action figures usually go for. So that's kind of part of the problem. I know some people get really, really into action figure collecting and they keep them in the box and they display them and all that. And that's totally cool. I definitely think you would like this if you're into that sort of thing, but it's a want that not for me. Sorry, guys. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. It is Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and I am going to be covering whether or not Games Workshop and Warhammer is pay to win. Can you just plop down more money than your opponent and win the game? Well, we will investigate it. And the answer may surprise you. I don't know. It might not surprise you. I have no idea. I, I really, to be honest with you, I am unaware of your independent expectations of this segment. So I don't know whether it's going to like blow your mind and you're going to quit your job, start a whole new life in the woods or something because of what I said in this segment, or like maybe you like already knew exactly what I'm going to say. And then like you fell asleep driving home, listening to the podcast and you get in a car accident. And then like, I feel guilty because I was so predictable and boring that then you're like hating me then. And then you listen to the podcast, but you just do it out of spite because I'm like your mortal enemy now. Yeah. Life's weird. So anyway, what do we <laughs> got completely off track? So this is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit. Oh, it's all pay to win. All oh, the whack players or the whales. You know, whales is a um, MMO RPG term. And if no, if you're not familiar with it, because I'm only familiar with it because I listen to a lot of RPG uh, MMO reviews and things like that. I like a lot of that on on YouTube. YouTube, even though I haven't played an MMO since Star Trek Online about ten years ago. But uh, a whale is a player that will spend ungodly amounts of money on a game just for the prestige or whatever so they can lord it over other people. And in their community, you know, that is something to be impressed by, is that, oh, this person dropped $10,000 on this MMO so that they can, you know, have um, colored text for their name or something stupid. And But, you know, the minute that you walk around with that colored text, people are going to go, oh my gosh, he spent $10,000? Wow, he must be wealthy or he must be whatever. And the free-to-play games, such as Star Trek Online and WoW and all that, they really depend on the whale players, the whale customers, because they are the ones that really, truly support the game. You know, you and I, as a average player, might, like, you know, throw a couple shekels their way once in a while, but we're not going to like spend thousands of dollars because I don't know, we're not rich and I don't know, we're responsible adults, probably, probably, 
probably, is the reason why. And these people must have more money than I do. Because I gotta tell you, these people throw so much money around, and they will spend $10,000 on stuff. And it's just, it's just insane. So, but the, the developers love the whales. That's exactly who does the heavy lifting for all the costs of developing the game. And it does somewhat seem like Games Workshop may be catering to whales now as well. I'm not 100% on that side, but I do want to explore both sides of it. So I've had many people talk to me about this, and I've discussed it over the years and all of that, and is... In the strictest sense, is Warhammer pay to win? You buy the best models for the best codex, and you just auto win. You know, that's a really tough question to answer, because in a way, it truly is pay to win. If, let's say, Drakari drops, right? Drakari is hot, and that codex dropped, and of course it was hot for a time being, but let's do Tyranids, that's more recent. Tyranid, Tyranid, I cannot talk. Tyranid Codex drops, and you jump on the bandwagon. You spend a couple thousand dollars with Games Workshop, buy all those models, all the hotness, and before they can nerf it, you go to some tournaments. You completely bash people's heads in with your seventy percent win rate or whatever it was, and it's kind of like the easy button, right? You paid at an opportune time. You bought the right things that were the best on paper, and it's slightly point and click. Now, of course, there is some skill and there is some luck involved with this game, but obviously, if one unit and another unit are the same price, and one has a 5-up feel-no-pain and another one has a 4-up feel-no-pain, obviously the 4-up feel-no-pain is the better model, if everything else is the same. So, naturally, these these units, they try to balance them with points, but the the units are not naturally balanced. So if the points are not balanced, then the models aren't balanced, which means there will be a discrepancy and a deficiency in some models compared to others. And the more efficient you can be with your points as far as damage output or points scored or board board coverage or what they can take as far as damage, if you can be more efficient with those points than your opponent, then you're going to win. And if some models are just undercosted or overpowered for their cost, or their rules are so ambiguous that Games Workshop has not chimed in and said, oh, we intended this way, that like the shenanigans with the um, Hive Crone or whatever it is for, um, oh gosh, for Tyranids, it's the flyer, one of the flyers. Um, our friend Andrew was telling me about all the shenanigans with it, you know, shooting you, flying off the board and all that because the rules were poorly written. So if you are hopping on that gravy train while it still lasts and you buy those models specifically for that reason and that codex just because it's the hotness and you know there are some players that do this, you know for a fact there's players that do this, then you are paying to win, right? Because the player that didn't do that is going to have a much harder time facing off against you because you spent a lot of money. Now, it's entirely a different thing if you were already into a faction and then they get the the boost, you know, a new codex is real hot or whatever, and then you just continue playing that army with that hotness. Well, I mean, that's not really your fault. You were already a fan of that army. You already played it. So it's not like you're jumping the bandwagon. But in the strictest sense, that is pay-to-win, and that would mean Games Workshop is a pay-to-win company. 
The difference, though, is that somewhat to their credit, but much to my chagrin, Games Workshop is trying to limit the amount of time that things are wholeheartedly on top. If your army is doing fantastic, then they will, in a month or a few weeks or whatever, they will probably nerf your game. And then that helps the overall health of the entire game. So a lot of the MMO stuff is actually pay to win because it doesn't change that much. It might change, like the whole meta may change from supplement to supplement, right? If they do season one, season two in a in a multiplayer RPG, then yes, this class might have got tweaked, or that class might be a new class and it's better than the others, or it's more point efficient or whatever they do, right? It's more time efficient. Then it is on top for a while. It's not like constantly changing. Games Workshop, on the other hand, is, or at least does seem to be doing their best to stay on top of this. And even though I think this is a horrible band-aid to sloppy rules writing and sloppy balance and no playtesting, even so, they are trying something to keep it balanced. And that means that it's the joke is kind of on you if you're buying your models specifically just to win because you're going to have a very short window where that is applicable, right? And nobody, except for James, owns every single army. No one. So it's not like you can just buy every single army and then wait for whatever the hotness is. And typically from Codex to Codex, the hotness is different anyway, right? So Razorwing flocks for Drakari back in the, I guess, 8th edition Codex, Razorwing flocks were fantastic. Okay, well, if you already owned Razorwing flocks, yeah, that's good on you, I guess, right? But if you bought them for the hotness, and now they're not hotness, and then you wait a couple years and get a new codex, Razorwing Flocks are one of the worst units in that entire book. One of the worst. Remember, Games Workshop does not know moderation. I assume every single one of them are like 700 pounds, and they all smoke six packs a day, and they go through four cases of soda, and they're all addicted to I don't know what else. I mean, like, I don't think they know what moderation is to any degree. If they do it, they do it wholeheartedly. If they want your codex to be really powerful, boom, it's top tier 70% win rate or 80%. If they go, oh, we overreacted. Let me nerf this. They go, boom, guess what? Worst unit in the whole game. <laughs> like, <laughs> there is no middle ground with them. So... I think their heart is in the right place. I think they are trying to do this and keep everything balanced and all of that. But I think they're just terrible at balance and rules writing. And then they're like very reactionary instead of proactive, right? But that is actually what limits it. The time frame that you can be on top with your newly purchased army that you airbrushed one color and you're going to go to tournaments and smash face just because the rules or the points are off that is a much smaller window than if you are an MMO person. You can pay for the best equipment, pay for the best class, or pay for upgrades that people can't do unless they spend money. That is going to last a lot longer, and that basically sets the tone for what type of game it is. It is pay-to-win if you can just buy better stuff and forever it's better, right? Now, of course, MMOs also, over time, they get better and better equipment, and they force the whales to buy that better and better equipment because the whales have to stay on top, I guess, for their ego or for the prestige. So Games Workshop, 
whether or not it's planned to let books be ridiculous to boost sales and then nerf it later on for balance, that might be their their strategy. And I would not be surprised at all because it seems like the exact thing they do every single time recently. So that very well may be on purpose, but it's not long enough for it to be a win, uh, pay-to-win game. Because now, oh, guess what? Next month, there's another army that's even better than you. What are you going to do? Buy a whole other army and chase that? I mean, certainly you can, and certainly people do. But that makes it cycle through so fast that it's not really pay-to-win. The whole other topic here is Forge World. Forge World, in my opinion, I've said this before, and I know you've heard this before on the podcast, but Forge World is pay-to-win. And the reason why... Get this, okay? And I've explained this before, but I'm going to say it again. We're almost 200 episodes in. Maybe you didn't hear it. Forge World has to be pay to win, or otherwise no one would do it, okay? When they are selling a Dreadnought for, let's say, a hundred freaking dollars, just because it's, oh, it's Forge World, which I don't care about, right? If the Dreadnought is nearly similar, or is pretty similar to the plastic Dreadnought for... Gosh, in my head it says 30 bucks. It's probably 50 or 60 bucks for a dreadnought, but Forge World can pay charge double the price, then nobody would buy it because if it was identical to a regular dreadnought and double the price, nobody would just buy it. So then you're like, "Oh, well, I got to give it something special, right? It's got to look different." And even then, most people aren't going to buy a double the price dreadnought just cuz it looks different. So then you're like, "Oh, it's got to have weapons that the dreadnoughts can't have. Ah, it needs those curse pattern pattern auto cannons or whatever, right?" Um, but then you're like, well, if the balance, if the rules and the points truly were balanced, right? And let's say for you get X amount of durability and damage output for 10 points of a dreadnought, and it's the exact same durability and damage output for 10 points of a forge roll dreadnought, even though their rules might be a little bit different. The ultimate result is that they have the same exact damage output and damage absorption at the same point cost, then you still would not buy a Forge World Dreadnought because it's 120 points for X damage output and X damage input, but one of them is double the price money-wise. You would never buy the doubly priced one because it's it's essentially the exact same thing in usefulness, right? So then what they have to do is then they have to go, oh, well, this one is the same points as the regular Dreadnought, but the damage output is really cranked up to 11, or, oh, the damage durability is cranked up to 11, or something like that. And then you're like, oh, this Dreadnought is just plain better. It's the same price points-wise, but it's double the price. Well, I'm willing to pay double the price for better efficiency of my points with this Forge Roll Dreadnought. And that's basically what the scenario is. Uh, Forge World, otherwise, you, you no one can ever convince me that the bulk of Forge World is not pay to win. Because why would you ever... You cannot tell me you would pay to double the price just because a tank looks cool. I, I truly don't believe that. If they sold Rhinos and then super cool Rhinos from Forge World for double the price, there's no way you're spending $120 on a super cool Rhino. If it was the exact same everything... I don't believe it. Now, of course, there's always those outliers that will be like, oh, it's cool looking and just dump money. And eh, you might want to look in the mirror. You may be a Games Workshop whale. You might be. But 
Forge World is certainly pay to win. But in conclusion, I don't feel like regular Warhammer, Age of Sigmar, or 40k, I don't think either one of them are necessarily pay to win because things get FAQ'd, things get refreshed, and things get recycled, and different factions spend time on top where it's at such rapid succession that they can't stick with it. So as much as I hate to admit it, I think at the end of the day, they really are not pay to win. Certainly, if you're dealing with those asshats that buy the latest codex and the latest models just to win for a month, yeah, they are definitely paying to win. But as far as an entire game, I do not believe it is pay to win. So there I go. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and thank you to GameAt.eu and this beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons for supporting the show. I will see you next week.